This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, and welcome to the Late Late Tuesday Night Show. I'm Natalie Marr, and you can join me for the next hour where I will discuss gifted students and mental health. Tonight, I'll be joined by Sylvia Garrido Soriano. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teach Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Natalie Marr and uh, I'll be here 9 till 10pm alternate Tuesdays on The Late Late Show. I hope to cover a variety of different topics on the show, but first let me introduce myself. I'm a drama specialist and director of drama. I have 20 years of teaching experience in various secondary settings in Hertfordshire, Essex and London. Alongside teaching and examining, I have a theatre review podcast called Theatre Audience Podcast. Um, And tonight's topic is gifted students and we'll be chatting about mental health and well-being. Tonight, I'll be joined by Sylvia Garrido Soriano. She's worked in education for over 20 years. She's published in the US and has been a keynote speaker at conferences. Alongside all of this, she also runs regular sound baths to support mental health amongst other therapies. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Sylvia this evening. Are you in the studio with me? Oh, hello, Natalie. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thanks so much (laughs) for coming on the show. And it's so lovely to have the opportunity to have a catch up with you. Um, It's quite a long time ago now that that we met each other. Um, Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about how we met and what it was (laughs) that we were working on? Uh, Yeah. It's not a lot. It's not a love story, that's for sure. So, <laughs> uh, I think it was probably about ten years ago, Natalie. I'm not completely sure, but at that point, I was the UK national director for FPS, which is Future Problem Solving. I think is a great program. Um, originates uh, from the States in the 70s by the father of creativity, uh, Paul Torrance, and. I, I was running it across the UK. You came to our school with your students and ever ever since we've just been in touch. So it's wonderful to be able to talk to you tonight about this fascinating topic, really. Exactly. Yeah, so, so wonderful to be able to have um, a chance to talk to you. And, um, and obviously, working with gifted students is something that is dear to your heart and something that you're incredibly experienced in. Could we maybe, for our listeners, just define the difference between sort of gifted versus more able, high achievers? Sure. Um, I think, obviously, uh, when we work in competitive secondary settings, um, we tend to be quite selective. and. Is, there is perhaps the misconception that all our students are gifted. I would like to obviously clarify different authors, different sources, they may vary a little bit on the percentage, but it's understood that one to three percent of our population is gifted, which is not only based on an IQ superior to 130, but it also involves creativity, problem solving, cognitive ability. So again, we have high achievers, so there are our pupils who actually um, want to learn, they spend time learning, they are bright, they ask questions, they, but they learn step by step. They get um, to the questions and to the answers by 
practicing, by spending time. Um, of course, they are able. I mean, if we go back to the bell curve and we look at the different deviations, if we understand that 100 would be the average, 15 at either side of the average would be about 70% of the population. Once we go beyond the 115, that's um, more able. Well, actually, it's not more able. That we shouldn't be using anymore. <laughs> they are high achievers. And above 130 is what we could call uh, gifted students. Now, obviously, here in the UK, um, the terminology has changed. We used to have uh, gifted and talented. Then they were more able. Now we are talking about high intellectual uh, abilities or high learning potential. So that's um, great. I mean, obviously, I could go on and on for a long time, but <laughs> understanding that gifted students, they perhaps don't ask questions. They are more about abstract ideas and concepts and theories. They don't need the step-by-step -step learning. They jump from two to ten. And obviously, when they are in the classroom, we need to cater for their need. And if we don't stretch and challenge them enough, we do tend to, to find um, difficulties. So either the 10 top percent or the bottom 10% of our students do require that strong differentiation and not because they are gifted. Uh, the myth or the misconception is that, um, well, they are, they are very able, they are gifted, they, are, they don't need as much support. And actually that's, that's wrong really to believe uh, in that way. Um, obviously, when it comes to gifted students, um, we understand gifted and talented. So a gifted child, pupil, student um, would be quite, well, would be very good across all subjects. We understand is uh, they are on this 97th percentile, whereas talented they would have a single talent or a multi, maybe a couple of uh, several domains, as could be an academic or artistic, or a single domain, which could be a creative, mathematical, logical, or a sport. So that's how we see um, our students and they, the different ability mm. in, in, in schools, really. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Um, I mean, so so this identifying um, of a gifted child um, is, I guess, it's it's different in in every setting. I mean, obviously, we're talking more from a secondary school perspective, um, but I guess within each setting, everyone's got their own policies and. Um, and guidelines with regards to to where you know where they identify who is gifted within a school would you would you say that's accurate um i think um obviously over the years there have been a few misconceptions for example uh, ranzuli's three ring conception of giftedness where he's talking about um gifted behavior is when we find uh, an above average ability with a creativity and the task commitment. And for a long time, um, incorrectly, this was uh, a sort of uh, a way of identifying gifted um, students. Unfortunately, the above average ability, we are talking about 15 to 20% of the population. So that would be our high achievers and they could be working really hard, that would be gifted behavior, but not necessarily a way of identifying uh, our pupils. It's, it's really important to uh, follow EP reports, to follow all the screening. However, not all um, screenings are actually accurate because if we encounter pupils who are twice exceptional or I, well, now in the UK, we call them DME, dual and multiple exceptionalities. These uh, pupils, they might have dyslexia or they might have dyspraxia. They might have, they, it's, it's a comorbidity alongside 
giftedness. So it's often um, difficult to ascertain their intellectual ability. And for that reason, in so many occasions, EPs cannot um, diagnose or just uh, find those uh, boy, those pupils who have that potential and that ability. So it gets a little bit complicated when it's only based on on a paper on a on a test without taking into consideration uh, a little bit more about the student because it's important to also ascertain information from tutors, from peers, from family. Communication is really important. We don't see everything in schools and it's important to to really uh, ascertain as much information as possible so i think that's why uh, finding out at times who those uh, gifted students are and and how to perhaps put it in paper i mean i think at the moment is i'm a true believer that labeling for the sake of labeling it's it's pointless so we should be labeling if we're going to support our students. So if we're going to uh, highlight that one of our pupils is gifted, then we need to take into consideration the likes and dislikes and the interest and, and mainly the passions, because that's what's going to, to help our students to really develop and, and be excited about researching a topic of interest because really we're aiming to get these pupils to be independent learners and sometimes in the classroom they might get bored they might misbehave as well and it's difficult at times for school for classroom teachers to be able to uh, work out with the high achievers with those who are less able and they need more support with the vast cohort the majority in between so it is a little bit of a juggling act and it is, I, I believe it's important to um, differentiate in the classrooms, but as well for those um, gifted students to, to perhaps have um, learning contracts so the student understands what is core and what they need to complete during the lesson. But once they have finished and usually is quite fast, then they can move on to their own project, they can move on to uh, that learning contract that has been pre-agreed with, with the teacher. Mm. That's really, really interesting what you say about the learning contracts. Um, I, I recall um, a couple of schools ago um, when I was um, gifted and talented coordinator, which is, you know, when I, when I met you, and and I remember doing a little focus group, sitting down uh, with a group of students across different year groups. And I remember a key thing coming up was where students said, um, I don't want to finish the tasks early because all I get then is an extension task. Absolutely. So I'd rather slowly work through and finish with everyone else because mm. the extension tasks that they were being given um and this is not you know in every classroom were just it was just extra work it wasn't um a step up or you know like up the ladder of another level of challenge it was just more of the same and uh, and and i remember a, it kind of it opened up a whole can of worms and then there was a massive tangent and then we looked into that and and worked out you know how we could change things um because you know and we're talking you know over 10 years ago um you know differentiation has really come on a long way um you know teachers it was just like an extra worksheet or hand you this or whatever just to keep you quiet because you're done and they can then go and support you know the middle or or the lower end of, of of the classroom so um yeah are you able to tell me a little bit more about these these yeah. learning contracts absolutely i think you've really um highlighted really interesting points there because and i i when i speak to teachers that's what i say to them if a student has proven they can do sums don't give them another worksheet of sums give them uh, subtractions or or tell them you know give them a little challenge 
because again it's and i think boredom is key if they get bored they're going to misbehave then they get in trouble then we are actually excluding them and it's a little vicious circle and the only thing i i truly believe communication it comes in all forms and shapes so uh, obviously primary school probably there is more frustration they'll bite they'll they'll misbehave in a different way and later on I'll speak to you about over acceptabilities but um, I just think when it comes to even identifying a child from the teacher's perspective so many times I mean I've worked in the Middle East I continue to contribute to uh, summer camps for the gifted in Spain in the summer and I'm quite uh, still connected to the US with future problem solving. And it doesn't matter where I travel or where I go, there is always the, the same uh, sort of big question mark from teachers, what can we do to help? But again, is that is those traits that so many teachers, they think, oh, well, he's misbehaved, he's underachieving, he's not completing tasks. So the question, the answer is, what are we actually doing when you have um, this curious pupil when they actually you can uh, perhaps uh, have little uh, almost like do a little bit of Sherlock Holmes here where you think okay fine are they curious do they take their own approach to assignments uh, do they have large vocabulary for example do they prefer to have adult conversations sometimes um, uh, pupils do not uh, really connect with the same uh, year group with the peers so they have their own original ideas they are probably uh, well they are obviously more cognitively advanced and they are able to self-teach so that's what I think that when we provide them with these contracts um, at, at first when I spoke to teachers they were obviously the first thing is we haven't got enough time we already have enough paperwork we have to already uh, differentiate for the less able so I think teachers have enough on their plate so they felt almost like it was going to be burdening them with these uh, contracts I just think is at the beginning of each unit or each term or each month or however um, you decide to really work around these it's a matter of um, teacher and student they sit together we're going to be uh, looking at this topic and the core material you need to come to really follow so they do draw I mean it could be just an A4 uh, document doesn't need to be anything fancy just one page as in these are the topics you need to complete these exercises from these pages or these topics or these um, areas and once this is completed during the lesson the student proposes those areas of interest within the subject that he would like to research he or she would like to research and then at that point is when we're actually letting them uh, research find the little niche uh, find the information that they're interested about they are independent learners and most importantly they are motivated and they are excited to be in that lesson rather than finishing very quickly and just messing about and getting into trouble and it's a vicious circle either way so either spirals up or spirals down really mm, that's yeah that's really interesting about the um the fact that they can you know finish quickly and then and then mess about behavior wise um that can cause um issues in the classroom um especially as those students may be the students that people look up to you know as as students who are, are brighter and who um, should be behaving etc so that's really interesting what else um, can teachers do then to support these gifted students in class I mean obviously it varies from subject to subject I think um, obviously your specialism is modern languages so what might be an example from from your teaching yeah, well, I think it doesn't matter um, the subject that you teach. I think I'm, I'm, I'm always really focused on the social emotional um, development. And I think for this cohort to be praised is very important. We obviously know that they have that uh, ability and they can uh, succeed. But 
to be able to thrive in a safe environment is when they can feel themselves and there, there is no judgment. So I think praise and attention to them is as important as to those less able because at times they feel a little bit isolated or or perhaps even just they we in class may use them as little teachers or you go and help someone or you pair you pair them up and I think it's quite exciting for them at some point to be able to support and help peers but they shouldn't be coming to to school to, to just support peers. And I think that's a little danger there in the classroom. Obviously, creativity and problem solving in any area is just getting that curiosity. Open questions, open-ended questions, where they can explore and develop. That's another way we could support them. Of course, collaborative tasks. And in order to get those um, key skills, such as Convergent and divergent thinking, reasoning, time management, organization. Probably all these words sound familiar to you about yeah. future problem solving, Natalie. <laughs> um, I just think that uh, all the acquisition of soft skills from an early age are fundamental tools because they need them in their adult life. And I think. Obviously, there is a lot of talk about our educational system, but it's not only here, I think it's globally, where we should be teaching to pass an exam. We need to provide them with all those soft skills, with those tools for them to be in society, in, in society when they're adults. So I think teachers, um, the idea of being the fountain of knowledge that was 50 years ago um, is obsolete. I think teachers, we should be facilitators. We really need to guide them. We need to give them support with their learning. And again, if they get bored, that's going to uh, to have an impact on their motivation and self-esteem. I know there has been quite a lot of controversy about Gardner's multiple intelligence over the years, but I still feel that if we know our students um, and the way they best learn, that's going to already be um, a good good way ahead. Uh, because if we know that we have visual learners and we just talk, 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 and, and they get really bored, then we switch <laughs> off, all of us would. But if it's a bit multisensory, we are trying to, to just get their attention, but well, get them working rather than just sitting and listening. It needs to be multisensory and interactive environment. So I think, uh, it doesn't matter what um, subject you teach, it's about being a little bit creative and, and maybe a little bit relaxed. Sometimes magic happens when we don't literally write down in our lesson plans minute by minute what happens. Sometimes an open question can lead to some magic, really. Mm, and that's so true. I mean, that's what education is all about, isn't it? It's about getting that inquisitiveness um out of the out of the students and and my best lessons are always the ones where I go off plan Ooh. um because that's because they've surprised me in some way or they've asked me a question that I am human and can't answer and and then we we you know we'll we'll go off on a on a research tangent to to find out how that works or why we should do that um and and that's what it's all about and and it's and it's like you say it's it's linked to that whole motivation and 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 not having them bored i mean that's the the worst possible thing where you have a student who is you know gifted very able and they're bored because they're not getting that level of stretch and challenge that mm. they need and then they coast absolutely and I just think as well, um, we all try to support um, this cohort, but and and we feel perhaps that uh, running a little club at lunchtime uh, will do. We tick a box. Yeah, well, we see them. We do some activities, and that's it. I just uh, even some schools they might remove them from lessons to follow different program or to follow different uh, challenges, but. I truly believe that the more we get them out of lessons, the more we are excluding them because they are, we are not providing that support in lessons. And whilst 
these different groups, they are supported at a different time in a different place, we are actually not doing it right. I know it's really difficult. I'm a school teacher. I'm in the classroom. Some, day, some days I feel like I'm a magician trying to, you know, support and challenge. And, you know, and I say to my students, look, we today we cannot be playing maracas. We really need to focus on what we are doing. It's a little bit more boring, but we really need to get on with things. So it is difficult, especially when we have exams, especially when we are uh, we have a syllabus to follow. But I think the most important thing and for me would be to provide that level of differentiation in class. I truly believe that whilst we walk into a classroom and we see every child doing the same exercise on the same page, we are not really providing the support they need because everybody works at their own pace. And some of our students may need to go over a few more repetitions and they'll need more consolidation. But again, on the other end, we need that stretch and challenge. We need to really support um, our, our more able students. And I believe that a multi-level teaching would be perhaps the best way of approaching lessons. But again, I think all these new innovative <laughs> techniques <laughs> and trying to learn new ways can be a little bit daunting at times so we understand as well what teachers have to go through on a day-to-day -day basis so it, oh it absolutely is, it is absolutely and like you say you know it's the magician I often feel like I'm I'm a clown, you know, <laughs> juggling, you know, <laughs> spinning those plates constantly because, you know, you're thinking I need to assess them, but also I want to challenge them or to stretch them. I need to, you know, new concepts. We need to now apply this. And, and you know, obviously the way in which um, we assess in schools, there's been a lot of conversation about this, particularly on Teachers Talk Radio, a lot of the shows that I've been listening to, there's been quite a lot of discussion about assessment and syllabus and, and skill sets and in today's society are we preparing students best for for their you know their work in the real world there's jobs out there that never even existed 10 years ago particularly mm. in tech um you know and how are we stretching and challenging them and preparing them for the future uh, and there's been some you know really really interesting discussions about that um obviously i don't want to go off into a tangent now mm. but just to come back to a point that you made about um you know where you may have a, a more able a gifted student um and and they'll be working another student in class. Let's just talk about how we choose sometimes to pair up the students with regards to differentiation. Because like you said about, you know, the boredom or the support, again, what came out of a discussion years ago that I had with them, with these uh, gifted students and also with talented students, I was working, you know, on the other side of things as well with regards to practical subjects, arts, creative, PE. Um, you know, these these students are not a teaching assistant. Um, they're not there to monitor the behaviour of, of other students in class or, you know, at times it's lovely that they're there to support a less able student and help them through. But if they get sat next to that same student and it's an expectation that they should be helping that student every lesson, a resentment can rise up there. Um, so how should we think about how we group um, students in class or, or where we seat them? Sure. I really think it's important to to have like almost like a carousel of activities. And, and I really get quite excited when we are doing things in the classroom and students can move. This sitting and not moving, it can be difficult, especially if we are hypermobility, even if we have different over acceptabilities in class. And, and I think how we pair them, I wouldn't say we can we pair uh, more able with less able. Uh, at times, pairing the very able together can be really rewarding, rewarding for them because they're actually just challenging each other. And obviously, we see certain traits amongst these uh, cohorts. So, um, recurring themes would be the universe, would be a more abstract um, 
subjects, life and death, um, existential questions, and uh, it's they get quite excited to find someone with their own interest to the same deep level of interest and it's like almost their own little niche so I think it's important for them to to be part of uh, something to feel they belong and and I just feel that at times it's nice for them to be part of a mix group where everybody brings something to the table because they are not necessarily always right they do as well make mistakes and they're always sometimes they can be even overconfident but again we cannot generalize because we also find uh, gifted students who are school refusals who are having mental health problems and who are really not coping at school so there is a lot of myth there but I really think, depending on the activity, uh, the important thing is that they are collaborative, they are interactive, they are hearing what others say and they can work together and build little by little those soft skills that is going to help them later on in life. Mm, absolutely. Um, and uh, and we'll come back to the challenges of, of being gifted uh, in a moment. I'm just going to take a second to remind our listeners of our sponsor, John Cat Educational. So this show, Teachers Talk Radio, is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. So coming back to the challenges of of being gifted then. Oh, goodness. Uh, how long do we have left, Natalie? <laughs> Half an hour. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, obviously, we are all different. And I'll share a little personal uh, just anecdote here. But um, mum... Fourteen and sixteen-year-old boys, and obviously, through their testing and their experience and being uh, diagnosed as gifted, uh, I was also diagnosed as adult as a gifted, and of course, that helps you a little bit to really understand uh, why do I feel like that? Why have I always felt different and odd and strange, and why I don't fit in, and why talking to my peers has never been very exciting, but I could sit with somebody uh, 20 years older and have the most amazing conversation. So I think we need to understand that um, intellectually, socially and emotionally, we develop differently. It doesn't match our chronological age. So that's something that is important to understand. So once I understood why my children behave the way they behave and why we are such a neurodiverse family (laughs) we understood each other really well (laughs) and I think uh, for our listeners there is um, I'm a great fan of uh, Casimir Dabrowski of course probably everybody has heard about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs or even Piechowski I think that um, Dabrowski back in the 60s he uh, found out um, a kind of relationship between gifted um, students and overexcitabilities. What do I mean by that? Um, gifted uh, individuals, they have that innate tendency to respond in a very much intensified manner to all sorts of stimuli, or stimuli even. So um, he's, uh, he's just given us, uh, he's classified this over excitabilities in five. So he talks about emotional, psychomotor, intellectual, sensual, sensory and imaginational overexcitabilities. And I think it's important to understand because especially in the classroom or with your children, family dynamics, there is an impact. And if we understand how we are wired, then it's going to help us uh, 
Number one, to avoid triggers. And secondly, to understand uh, situations and, and to not judge and not to label incorrectly. For example, emotional overexcitability um, is that intense connection, feelings, fears of death, embarrassment, uh, the feeling of fairness or injustice. I cannot help it. I am not being sensitive. I'm not being dramatic. I truly feel deep inside that uh, feeling of injustice greatly. And somebody may say, well, well, you're taking it too much at heart. Yeah, but I'm not doing it purposely. That's how I feel. So it's my, my intensity and it's my reality. And I still remember being called to the headmaster's office 30 years ago and I can still feel the same way as I felt because we are intense and and we go back to that particular day and we almost relieve that situation. So again, if some of your students have um, overexcitability, well, actually, if they do, which one they have is almost like we all have one or two more predominant. Um, on a psychomotor um level is that surplus of energy so there is that hyperactivity are all gifted individuals with a psychomotor overexcitability adhd no they're not but again teachers see what the students young people especially in primary where they need to move where they're very active where they're impulsive nervous habits maybe ticks nail biting a lot of physical energy so it's so easy to misdiagnose and I think there is that um, very thin uh, uh, line or level between um, gifted and overlapping with other conditions that very often is misdiagnosed really. An intellectual uh, overexcitability would be those, um, those students that they have that uh, greatness about probing questions, analytical thinking, reflectiveness, problem solving, interest in abstraction. So it, it goes beyond them. It's like, it's almost like it's so intense, they cannot help it. And that's at times can be difficult when they are working with peers because they can come across as being rigid thinkers, but they are just intense because they truly, truly uh, feel that way. And I'm sure that all of us at school, well, actually, I, I did because uh, of it just feeling in that category. But uh, on a sensory level, how many times have you worn, especially girls, those woolen tights? Remember in the olden days, they were so oh, itchy. Against and, those chairs. Oh, they were so uncomfortable. <laughs> or the labels, or sitting next to light, or the noise, the smell near the, the nylon A skirt, uh, the oh. A line skirt with the <laughs> nylon lining, which didn't go well with the exactly. tie. Exactly. So, again, if you have a pupil in front of you who's always fidgety and pulling tights and moving and scratching and labels, that's showing that sensory overexcitability. And finally, the fifth category is um, imaginational. So is that creativity, that uh, visualization of events, fantasy, poetic, artistic. So there will be um, just showing uh, their giftedness alongside their overexcitabilities. And they shouldn't be penalized, but we should be aware of really that that's, that's who they are we cannot judge it's just how we are wired and that's how intense we are <laughs> so it could be a good thing it could be <laughs> a, a less good thing at times but we are intense people and and again with my children we could have three of us we could see the same event and experience it in three completely different ways and that's how amazing being <laughs> neurodiverse <laughs> is and the uniqueness of being human. <laughs> oh my goodness, absolutely. <laughs> and it, you know, it's it's actually really, really interesting what you say there about different reactions. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a drama specialist, so everything that I see and do is in with you know the desks are not there unless we're doing theory work mm. and it's A level or or GCSE. But for the most part, 
it's big open spaces. The students have more essentially freedom um, with regards to, you know, talk through learning, group work, pair work, um, you know, a, a lot of the time, you know, staff within different departments in, in the various different settings that I've worked in, you know, group work and pair work is a luxury of time when there's so much curriculum and assessment Absolutely. and exam work to get through. Whereas for me, it's, it's, it's sacrosanct, you know, it's, it's, it's what the whole thing, the whole, my subject is about is, is is about working with others or communicating with others or to your audience and um you know that whole thing about emotion memory about emotional recall about um you know this this reality this this intensity um and you see it that's it, the psychology of children the minute you split them into a group they naturally fall into there's a leader that person's railroading you know and you have you know, wade in and facilitate and remind them about the different rules within working in a group, about being collaborative, about listening to each other, about taking on board others' suggestions, even though you may not think they're very good or you agree mm. with them, you have to try it out. And it's, it is it is fascinating um, to think about this, you know, in, in other classroom settings. Um, yeah, really, really, really interesting. Yeah, and that I think, as you yeah. mentioned, obviously, uh, they are working collaboratively at uh, could be primary school, secondary school, mm. but eventually they are going to enter uh, the workplace, the work environment, and they they need those soft skills. They need that those abilities. They in order to be able to work with other people and and understand that they have different point of view so they are developing that analytical and critical thinking rather than my way or the highway kind of thing because mm -hmm. we have stronger or weaker personalities and and again as you mentioned automatically you know who's going to be the leader who's going to be the follower and self-sacrificing and of course self-regulation that's another big thing when it comes to gifted students Mm, and that kind of leads neatly on to um, perfectionism and, you know, whether gifted students can sometimes come across as being quite sort of highly strung, like you said, the mm. sort of my way or the highway. Mm. Um, sometimes there's an incredible amount of of perfectionist behavior and and and, and where that comes from. Well, of course, I'm always right, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, I think when you are, uh, I think when our students, they feel very strong and very passionate about their niche. They know a lot, even sometimes more than teachers. Absolutely. And, and they are just, it's not necessarily obsessed, but they are engrossed in that conversation. So, of course, uh, when you're so passionate about it, you are right because you've researched it and you know a lot about it, uh, which can be difficult. I think then is when the social interaction perfectionism comes, which leads us uh, to different challenges and mental health. Mm. Um, I think, uh, especially teenage girls, they do go through a dip. I mean, obviously, gifted teenage girls. Um, not that all teenage girls, I'm sure all teenage girls go through difficult times during the, the teenage years, but especially um, gifted girls, they is what they are called like chameleons. They adapt to their environment and they often play down their talents to feel accepted. They don't want, we know the dynamics between girls is slightly different to boys and, and for them in order to be accepted, to fit in, there is a lot of peer pressure, which um, it's just uh, something like to really uh, bear in mind when it comes to their mental health. And and again, uh, ment recently I was talking to someone about, but what is it mental health? We talk about mental health, but what is it actually? Mm. Oh, mental health issues. But what is it? It's just like that abstract term. And it's like, yeah, that umbrella. Saying, yeah, exactly. I was saying, well, for me, uh, having a good mental health is to to be able to manage situations that come on a day-to-day -day basis and to to be able to analyze to be able to recognize and to uh, to manage really in a healthy way so when we get 
quite depressed or tormented or anxious and we get a little bit clouded. So that's how we see more and more mental health issues with our our pupils. And I just think, as we as you mentioned, with perfectionists, that high level of anxiety um, and frustration because they want to do it perfectly. And at times, I mean, obviously, I don't do art, but I can imagine how hard it can be when uh, well, actually, I don't do art, but I have a perfectionist son who does art. So <laughs> that was going through his GCSEs, Natalie. That was an absolute <laughs> nightmare to the point that we, I said, look, let's stick a rock in front of this corner. We don't need to see these things, you know. It's okay. It doesn't need to be perfect. But to the point that he would do it again. It doesn't mm. look right. It's not perfect because uh, they want to to do the best they can. And if there is a little thing is not good enough. So I think we need to learn to teach them, to help them to understand how uh, the frustration rises, increases, and how um, the little um, little warning signs almost, um, it's first affecting their body. That's why I speak a lot about uh, to my students. It's like, before you get angry and that volcano erupts, <laughs> what are the little signs, you know? Uh, are you tightening your fists? Are you getting hot, sweaty? Is your body showing little signs of how things are changing? So if we begin to and to help them and understand how to regulate those emotions, we prevent that big escalation and that big volcano. Mm. So definitely. Really, yeah, really interesting that you say that because it's it's that whole. I guess they've they've kind of got this ingrained sort of like fail to prepare, prepare to fail. You know that saying, and 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 wanting to be the best, wanting to know where their place is within that group, or get that hundred percent for that test, and and so, and 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 also sometimes sort of sidestepping around maybe doing things that are outside their comfort zone that they know they can't do because they want to have that element of success and that element of 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 praise um do gifted students therefore to to avoid you know do they do they struggle when they when they don't do well when they get 98 percent for example rather than that 100 percent you know like where where does that put them in terms of their 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 mental health well i think again we are all uh individuals and we all have our strengths and weaknesses we cannot say and generalize this is probably Mm. the more the most uh, heterogeneous group because (laughs) you actually have um gifted students who are very well regulated, who are happy, who've gone through schooling without having any issues, they've adapted, they're self-regulated, and they're actually very successful uh, later on in life. Now, on the other hand, we we can find um, pupils who have not been supported. We need to understand as well uh, social economical background, support they get at home, uh, ACEs. I mean, recently I've been looking a lot into ACEs as well and the impact in adult life. And all this really needs to be taken into consideration. So, yes, um, some, I mean, some pupils, they'll get 80% and they'll be okay with it. Some others will get 99% and you will feel their frustration. They will challenge me. Oh, well, miss, are you sure about this? Yes. Oh, but did you not say, no. Is that an accent? Did you knock me one mark because an accent? Yes. Okay, so, you know, it's always like almost haggling. And he's like, no, take it. You are 99% on this test. It'll be okay. It's okay. You know, so you almost need to reassure them that the world is not going to end. And especially with our DME students, uh, because they need... Uh, they need that support because being SEND pupils. But then at the same time, we cannot, I mean, I don't think um, our duty as educators is to um, dumb tasks down. We are not meant to give them easy tasks. We are meant to give them a lot of context. So the more we support them, 
the more tools we provide, the more help they have to tackle the task, the task should still be cognitively demanding. But we need to support them in a way that we are not failing them. And I think that's that's the balance that we need to have, especially with the low achievers, especially with uh, with very uh, gifted um, children who leave school at the age of 16 without any GCSEs. That they have, they, it's not that they have failed, we have failed them, the system has failed them because they haven't been able to provide um, the right um, provision for them. So yeah, it's important. Absolutely. And obviously, you know, school and books and, and you know, it's, it's not for everyone. Hence the fact, you know, in, in years gone by, there were different colleges technical colleges etc where you know they could learn practical skills that would that were much better suited to their skill set and their abilities and talents but i just think like if um if you can picture maslow's hierarchy of needs he's talking about Mm -hmm. uh physiological needs that's the base of the pyramid and then he goes to safety needs then love and belonging and i'm I just am passionate about that level of belonging. We need to get them socially and academically included. So if we transfer that to an educational setting, those physiological basic needs, which could be just food and water, shelter, in an educational setting, we are providing with a timetable, with term dates, with classroom. Do they know where they are going? Are we providing those basic needs? Then we move on to the safety needs. Uh, do they have the resources? Are we providing with mark schemes? Are they know how? Do they know how they're going to be uh, graded, evaluated? What time of what type of testing? Is it a one test at the end of the year and that's it, or are they going to be working? Uh, some of our pupils they might be quite confused trying to to just uh, maneuver through the day-to-day and let's not forget you have your EAL students as well which at times which barrier can mask that they are gifted and it's something really important to consider especially in recent years where we have uh, more refugee or uh, students under refugee status uh, international um, law so again i think once they understand where they're going how they're going to be evaluated they go the next step they feel reassured so the Hmm. next step would be the social and academic inclusion they belong and i truly believe they need to belong they need to have friends they need to to be part of something because we feel and I say we because I do as well. Some days I think, oh my goodness, it's like I've just landed on <laughs> Mars. You know, is everybody talking to me? Are they understanding what I'm talking about? Uh, because it's hard to find your little tribe, and it is very hard. And once they belong, once they are part of something, they are that self-esteem, that um, that's a motivation increases which will reflect on their academic results how we provide feedback and eventually we want them to become independent learners that self-actualization that maslow is talking about is that independent learners Um, which actually i don't know but this is news to me recently that the pyramid has been upgraded it's been revised because of Mm -hmm. course society has changed in the last 50 years so (laughs) now beyond self-actualization we have self-transcendence so that's how once we've achieved that independent learning then we can help others then we are part of um helping each other i know probably we're running out of time but i would like to say one more thing natalie (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, that's great because I was talking about the self-esteem and collaboration and, and obviously there's, you know, ways in which we can help mental health and I think that's where, where you're going. Oh, I just think, I talk too much, so do, please, too. No, it's wonderful. And really, no, I'm really <laughs> learning oh, I hope so our much. listeners I are not really bored or they're not sleepy there. Well, it oh, could be. Oh, no, I want you to tell me about, the, you know, the meditation and the gong Oh, yes, true, I forgot about that. Yeah, well. Mental health Yes, push. absolutely, absolutely. I do, uh, 
I, I do run uh, sound baths um, regularly and I think uh, in different schools, uh, I've done it in primary schools, I've done it in secondary schools, I've done it in uh, more inclusive schools and I think this boy, I think he was about maybe seven or eight, um, he has ADHD and he came to me after the session and said, Miss, this is the most relaxed I've ever been. And I thought, Aww. that's wonderful. So basically wonderful. sound baths, it's, as I say to, to the pupils, is a, is a cheap way of going for a meditation. Now, when somebody says meditation, especially the younger ones, oh, don't think about anything, welcome your thought and let go. And oh my goodness, I'm already stressed. I'm already thinking about what I should be cooking and shopping and everything else. <laughs> so I think with sound baths, basically, they just listen to the different sounds, which are different instruments that they're not the normal sounds that they would hear. So I play the crystal balls, Tibetan balls, chimes, um, uh, all sorts of um shruti box and and of course they go into a very deep relaxation the brain goes down to a theta brain wave so they relax by listening to the different sounds and often they fall asleep but again they keep on coming for more so i think it's wonderful how we can no matter what we do if we can help um, their mental health no matter what it is, that's we are already helping them towards that uh, self-regulation and resilience. So I think if we if we provide that include that differentiation, understanding them because they are individuals, they are not a little label that fits all. Every label is different, and we praise them. Um, Linda Silverman, wonderful lady, she says. Um, she talks about equity and and she she was talking about well she gave us this metaphor uh, a while back and she said equity is not about giving every child a shoe it's about giving every child a shoe that fits them so it's not about giving everybody something we need to tailor to their needs and and i think that's how we should be doing it really I think that's a wonderful way of summing it up. I love shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many, you know, literature quotes about, you know, characters, people, shoes, different, you know, different unique experiences and uh, walking around in other people's skin, which is my favourite Killer mm. Mockingbird quote. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, really important that, that these gifted students have that way of self-regulation when they're hungry, you know, that halt when they're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, frustrated, you know, to find a way. And I know particularly, you know, during the pandemic, um, how important it was um, I did little meditations with some of my GCSE and A-level students and and they really appreciated that and it's become part of my practice now um, as a drama specialist. So I, I really do understand the importance of that and, and for myself, you know, to switch off from work and, and all the other pressures um, that we have as adults as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining me this evening, Sylvia. You're it's, very welcome. It's been really lovely to listen to you and all your experience. And uh, and I hope our listeners have been able to get, um, to get something out of this. Um, do tune in to some of the other Teachers Talk radio shows. There's a really exciting programme and lineup for the rest of the week. Um, obviously, you can listen to all of our shows after they've been published um, and after they've gone live. I was listening um, yesterday to the late show with Christopher Vols that had gone out on Sunday. Um, so if you're interested in what myself and Sylvia have been talking about, then please have a listen to this show. Christopher was discussing ways of challenging and supporting ABLE students as well. Um, but he was talking to the CEO of National Association for ABLE Children in Education uh, called NACE, uh, uh, Rob Lightfoot. And he was also speaking to Professor Andy P. Hull of the University of York, uh, St. John. 
and uh, and and what they were talking about was was also fascinating. So it's been a real week for me of of learning more and more about this area and thinking about how I can and use some of this information in my own practice. Uh, so thanks once again for listening to my show. It's been a delight to be here on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you to the whole Teachers Talk Radio family for their their help and support with my show this evening.